Well, if you have your Bible, uh, I'm going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, just a heads up, it's about to get real hairy for David here in a few minutes. Um, I used to work at um, uh, Exogen when I was in high school. I know that's surprising looking at my physical features, but uh, I, I did. And, and in high school, I was like the front desk guy. And um, I had this moment, it was super, super awkward. And, and because of my nature, I made what should have been about 5% awkward, 105% awkward, far more than it should have. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where you just like words started coming out of your mouth and you were digging a hole and you're like, I just need to stop talking at some point, and it just gets deeper and deeper, and before you know it, it's, it's out of hand. And uh, so w- When I worked there, there was a married couple that they, they would work wherever they worked at, and they would, uh, before they went home uh, after work, they would meet each other at the gym. They'd work out together, and they, that was just a daily thing. Every day at around 5.30 or 6 o'clock, this married couple would come in, and they would work out. And so one day the phone rings, and I pick it up, and, you know, and it's, it's the wife, and she says, hey, uh, Jesse, uh, my husband left his cell phone at home, so I can't get a hold of him. Uh, I need you to let him know I'm going to be late. I was in a wreck, but everything's okay. And uh, just let him know that I'm fine. I'll be there as soon as I can. So, okay, great. Uh, I will, I will uh, let your husband know that. Husband walks in, and I just think, I said, hey, uh, did, did you hear? <laughs> he said, no. I was like, oh, um, okay. So, uh, and I'm stammering, and I'm trying to figure out my footing. Like, how am I going to get this out? I said, okay. Uh, and I just forced it out. I was like, your wife was in a wreck and you would have thought like someone just kicked him right in the gut. I mean, he was, he leans in. He's like, okay, tell me more. It's, uh, uh, it's okay. Uh, she called. She said, she's fine. She'll be here in a minute. He said, why did you start that way? <laughs> why did you start that? I said, I don't know. I don't know you. And I was so nervous and I was just, I just, I couldn't get myself out of it. Eventually I apologized to him. I apologized to her. They never looked at me the same after that. Uh, I, I don't know. Surely there's a better way to have approached that subject than that. There, there's this, there's this thing that is so funny. You even chuckled as I said it. Like when, when we put our foot in our mouth or when we start digging that hole, it is, it is, it is so fun to sit back and watch, unless, unless you're the one in it, of course. Uh, I, I could not get off that shift early enough. I mean, I just wanted to go home. I wanted to quit. I wanted to get out of it. So many comedies now, even movies, like the, the basis of the movie is someone started digging a hole and then they didn't stop. And we laugh and we put money towards the movie. Uh, if they just stopped what they were doing right at the beginning, right when it made sense to stop, th- there would be no movie. Uh, th- think of the story of Dumb and Dumber. He gets the briefcase, right? And the whole movie is him trying to return the briefcase that he had no business having to begin with. Spoiler alert if you haven't watched Dumb and Dumber, but it's been out for like 30 years. Uh, I think of uh, probably every episode of The Office, if Michael Scott would like, as soon as he put his foot in his mouth, he just like, eh, probably shouldn't have said that. End of the episode. It's about three minutes long. It's over no laughs. But because he keeps digging, we keep laughing, right? And then uh, I was trying to think through like other movies that are like this, and, and probably one of the classics, one of the, even more than Dumb and Dumber, I really love uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This kid, Ferris Bueller, my gosh, I mean, I mean, I wanted to be him, uh, just like having the mannequin trick my parents and I'm still asleep in bed. But his entire day is him just doing whatever he wants, digging that hole deeper and deeper. And all he had to do, all he had to do was like show up to class and the movie's over right there at the beginning. But he didn't want to show up to class. He just kept digging and digging and digging. It's great for comedy. And the reason why you laugh at that and the reason why these comedies are so big and so successful is because every one of us has been in a situation where we put our foot so far in our mouth we can taste leather and we just didn't stop. 
We were digging that hole and it's get digging deeper and deeper and we should have stopped. We should have stopped when we, when we said that first thing out of anger and it's like it just came out involuntarily, but then you double down on it and then you triple down on it and then you quadruple and eventually you're sleeping on the couch and you're the one washing the dishes, but okay, uh, you kept digging and you kept digging. The reason why we resonate with those stories so much is because we are those stories and we know what it feels like to just keep going deeper and deeper into it. Here's what we're going to see with David in a moment. David finds himself in probably one of his most famous stories. If David and Goliath is the first famous story, the most famous story, this is going to be the second most famous story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And David, he digs a little. And instead of stopping when he could have, he digs a little bit more. And instead of stopping, he keeps digging, he keeps digging, he keeps digging. And at the end, he has to deal with the consequences of that. And at the end, he has to deal with a righteous God who expects more of him than that. And at the end, he has to ask for forgiveness. And what I want you to do is uh, we can take the, um, I don't know, the, the Dumb and Dumber route, which is we're in the theaters and we're just watching it, and we laugh and we point, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Or we can try to remember times where we were doing that, when we were putting our foot in our mouth, when we were digging too deep. Uh, and even if you change some of the content, uh, maybe, maybe we see a little bit of humanity in this. We're in the series on David. We're going to be, as I said earlier, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David is, again, I've said this every time, but in, in the Old and the New Testament, is considered a man after God's own heart. There's something redeemable about his character. He has all of these qualities that are worth following, but then he has some terrible, terrible flaws, which is really good news for all of us who have flaws, uh, that we can still be considered a man or a woman after God's own heart, despite our mistakes. And I think part of what we're going to see today is how we handle our mistakes. Last week, um, David brings the Ark of God back into the center of Israel's thought process. It's been out for 20 years, and he brings God back into the spotlight. He makes a mistake while doing that because he doesn't really consider what God wants. You may remember that from last week. Uh, he doesn't consider God's ways on doing it. He's just like party time, bring God back into the spotlight. Uh, the Yuza, uh, uh, he dies as a result of that. But but it's commendable that David, for the last twenty years, nobody brought God in the spotlight. David says, "No, it's time." Uh, and if you are a man, a woman, if you're a father, a mother, and you're like, it's time for me to bring God back into the spotlight of my family, David is a good example to follow for doing that. However, you may remember last week is that David had a, a problem with uh, his both his first wife and his fourth wife. It's the same person. Uh, he remarried her. Uh, and, and that is that she wanted nothing to do with this. You're dancing with all you might. You disgust me. You remember that, uh, McCall? And McCall uh, turns her back on David. And what we see about David is this, is this little chink in the armor last week is that uh, he doesn't address personal conflicts at home. He can address an entire nation going at war with him. He's a great warrior. He can go to work and do his job well, but when he goes home, he ignores conflict and he doesn't address them. Today, we're going to see that chink explode open because he should be at work and he's not. So if you would uh, read with me in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to start in verse uh, 1. It says, uh, in the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, who was one of his generals, also his nephew, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's a lot going on. We're going to unpack in this first verse. It's in the spring of the year, so we're, we're out of the winter. This is the time when the roads become passable. This is the time when the rain should sort of be, be dying down. This is the time, Scripture says, when kings go out to battle. Every king who 
has a job to do is going to figure out who we're attacking, we're getting after. David's job right now is to lead his nation, lead his army into battle. When kings go out to battle, David doesn't go out to battle. David delegates his role, his, his, his rightful role, to a man named Joab. What we're going to see is a problem develops in part because David now has idle hands where he should be in battle, occupied, busy doing a thing. He's like... I'm going to let somebody else take care of that. I'm not going to deal with that this year. I go to battle all the time. I've I've fought Philistines. I've fought Ammonites. I've done great at that. The chapter before, he was doing awesome at fighting the Ammonites. He's just bored, and he's tired. Uh, And in the spring of the year, when the other kings go to battle, he stays at home. He sends some other people to take care of it. And it says in that first verse that they were successful. They ravaged the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. And so from, from, you know, you're giving David a scorecard, like, hey, how are you doing on your job? Well, I mean, you delegated that to somebody else, but the job's getting done. So it must be okay. It must be good, right? It says in verse 2, it happened. The, the way that the author is, is listing this out is the author wants us to know like this is like, keep your eyes open because it happened. Like this is big. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was taking a nap uh, and he wakes up late afternoon. Here's a guy who's just like, he's not even at work, but he's, he's like sleeping through the day. Uh, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of boredom uh, implied here. He rose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Uh, David has at this time at least four wives, maybe more if I go back and count them all. Uh, Michal, uh, the one that he uh, kind of uh, disagreed with last week and just sort of pushed her to the side. Scripture says that she's very beautiful as well. So he has beautiful wives. It's not like he has a, a whole slew of ugly wives and now here's a beautiful woman. He has a beautiful wife. He has beautiful wives everywhere. But, but he's walking around on his roof and he sees a woman bathing. Uh, I was reading something and it never occurred to me to walk around on your roof isn't the same as going for a stroll like outside. If, if, you, if you are at home and you're like, hey, honey, I'm, go, I'm going to go for a walk. Uh, you take off from your house and you, you have like a path. You take through your neighborhood. You probably don't pace back and forth on the street, right? You would, you would get the cops called on you, wouldn't you? Uh, you? You have like a meander, you're looking around. But to walk around on your roof is just like you're, you're twiddling your thumbs, you're bored, you're, you're isolated, you're not where you should be, you've slept all day, uh, and you're just pacing back and forth. What we should be seeing with David is that the the risk for making poor judgment calls is increasing as this goes. He's not where he should be. He has idle hands. He seems a little anxious. He's pacing back and forth on his roof. And as this risk increases, he sees out, because he's got a high roof, he sees out this woman who is very beautiful, and she's bathing. Verse 3, it says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. So he sees her. Hey, there's a beautiful woman. And then, then like, you know, any normal person would be like, Oh my gosh, like get some blinds. And then you just like go, you go back in your house or something. But David is like, Hey, I'm going to, uh, so, Hey, Hey, Bill, Bill, go, go figure out who that woman is. He calls somebody up on the roof. See her in the bathtub. Go, go check, go check on her. Who is that? David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Um, this, this takes, this takes the person of Bathsheba. This is probably a, a point for another sermon another day, but, but it's interesting to me that, that he gets not, not just like where she is or like just a name. It's like a whole like lineage. Like, oh, she's married. She's the daughter of this person. This is her name. Uh, it take, it takes the objectification of Bathsheba and just puts a, a personhood on her. And David has to deal with that. Um, in that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, here's, here's what I can tell you about a Hittite, by the way, just for all of you who, care about humanities and history. Uh, 
Not a lot. I don't, I don't know, I don't know much about Hittites. Uh, I, I looked it up. There's like a whole Hittite empire about 200 years before this moment. I didn't know about them. I'm reading about cities I've never heard about. There's a whole thing. Just Google like what a Hittite is. Here's the point of this story. Hittite is not Israelite. Hittite is not Jewish. The man, Uriah, is someone who is living in Israel and understands who Yahweh is, but he wasn't born and raised that way. He's from a different people group. Um, David, David is going to be more pagan than this man who was born a pagan. And the Hittite man is going to be more faithful than David who was born a Jew. Verse 4, so David uh, sent messengers and took her, it's a very, very forceful term, and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh, that phrase that she's purifying herself, that the idea uh, is, I always thought when she was taking a bath, it's just like someone taking a shower on their, on their roof for some reason in the middle of the day. Um, but this idea of purifying yourself, this is a religious term. And the idea is that she's just finished her cycle. And before she can go worship uh, in the temple, uh, as, as all the women in town would want to do, before she can go worship in the temple, she has to purify herself. Uh, it, is a, it is a religious moment. And she's there purifying herself. She's thinking, how can I get right with God? She's thinking, how can I keep my relationship with God you know, functioning? My, my husband's at war, but I'm still taking my relationship with God seriously. And all the while, there's, there's David who just sees her for an object and sees her for you know, whatever, and so, so takes her and sleeps with her. She conceives, and uh, she says, hey, I am now pregnant. So we have to understand that some time has passed, some weeks have passed, months, uh, but she knows that she's pregnant. So here we go. David has uh, unquestionably sinned. There's a mistake that's happened. And now this mistake, though he probably was kind of ignoring it for a while, a few weeks, it now has, he now has to answer for it in some way. And this is the part where David, he's already dug like two scoops of dirt out, right? And he's standing in a pretty good sized hole, but there's still a chance. David could just like, just repent. He could, he could do something about it, but he, he has a, he's a little conniving, uh, thought here. here. Here's what he does. It says, so David sent word to Joab. That's the general. He says, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, hey, uh, how's Joab? Uh, and how are the people? And, and how's the, the war going? Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you had to have a hard conversation with somebody? That's David right now. He has to have a conversation with this woman's husband. Hey, she's pregnant, and and it's my kid. But instead of like having the hard conversation, uh, he's like, "Hey, so how's the, how's how are things going? How's your family? Mm-hmm. Yeah, how's how's your boss doing? Yeah, Joab. Yeah, yeah, just checking in. Okay, how's the war?" It's good. I'm sure Uriah's like, hey, man, there are other people more qualified. To, like, you can send a messenger. He's just some guy who's brought back from war. It says, then David said to Uriah, hey, go down to your house, wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. I, I would love to know what kind of present uh, David sends Uriah. What do you send a man in this situation? Like, you're going to go down there and find out your wife is pregnant or something. Like, hey, uh, here's, here's, a, here's a little, you know, baby bottle, you know, boy, girl, don't know, gender reveal party. Here's a present. Take this. Go, go home. Wash your feet. So it's verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Uriah is now like off of war. 
The risk of dying is like away from me, like his boss, the boss's boss's boss. Like this is, this is the king of the nations. Hey, just go home and be with your wife for a while. Here's a present. And instead of going home, he goes and he sleeps at the doorway of the palace with a couple of the servants. It's just kind of out in the open air. And this confuses David. Now, you and I, uh, especially if you've been in church for a while, I think, I think everybody kind of knows that David is planning something. He's kind of conniving. But the author kind of leaves it for a little bit of like, you know, we're going to discover this as, as we go. Um, David, David's got to be a little confused by this. It says in verse 10, when they told David, hey, Uriah, he didn't go to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? He's like, You're, aren't you really tired, man? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah's response is this. He says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or, or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. See, David, David's thinking, I've got this figured out. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him to go home, and then he'll think that the kid's his, and that's fine. That's going to be great. And in Uriah's response, the man who did not grow up in Israelite has so much respect for God, has so much respect for the army of God, has so much respect for the king of God. He's like, I'm not going to do that thing. In this one like little interaction, David is conniving how to cover up his sin, and Uriah is showing him how a righteous man should have responded, should be responding in this situation. And he says, I, I just, I can't do it, King. I, I mean, I got my, my friends, other soldiers that are out there and they're, they're going to war. They're, they're not getting to go home with their wives. Who am I? I don't, I don't deserve that. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So in verse 12, it says, and David said to Uriah, Hey, that's fine. Remain here today also. Just stay one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. He said, hey, while you're in town, you just come eat with me? And he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get him just blackout drunk. This is, this is a good idea. Um, if, if just real quick, just a tip. If the solution to your problem is, is going to be alcohol, you've, you've already lost. Okay. Like that is not the solution to really any of the problems. Uh, David is, he's like, I'm just going to get this guy just hammered. Uh, and I'm going to send him home. And he still doesn't go. He still sleeps on the couch. And so now David is, is starting to look a little conspicuous. He keeps, you know, playing this game with Uriah. So, uh, he has a plan now. And I think most of you know this, but, but look at how, how it's worded here. In the morning, David wakes up. Dude didn't go home. I've got to send him back to war. So he sends him with a letter. He wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He writes a letter to Joab, seals it. He's like, hey, Uriah, give this back to your boss, my general. Give this to him when you get there. What does the letter say? It says, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, blah, 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 it goes into the story of how he died. David's solution now is I'm going to send a note to the general and just like, hey, pull back and, and let him die. David is now, uh, and he does. This is exactly what happens. Uriah goes, he's like, hey, boss, uh, I was told to give you this letter. Guy opens up the letter and says, okay, send this guy to the front, okay, and then pull back, okay, so that he dies. Ugh. All right, buddy, uh, 
Can I get you anything? Uh, you know, like I'm sure there was a weird conversation in that moment. Joab does exactly that. Uh, not only does Uriah die, but a bunch of other men die. So in David's like need to hide his sin, to hide his mistakes, uh, he has sent multiple men into harm's way to die. And I'm sure he feels pretty good about himself. Oh, yes, finally worked. I, I've got this figured out. Let me, let me uh, bring up a point real quick. This seems like, and when I read this uh, the first time ever, how long ago it was, this seems... Uh, scandalous. It seems wrong. It seems evil. I think all of the things are true. But where? what if I told you that David learned that behavior from somebody? See, see, what I found out when we started the series on David, it never occurred to me, is that Saul did to David exactly what David is doing to Uriah. Saul needed to do something to get David out of the way. He tried a couple of things. He threw a spear at him a couple of times. He tried a couple of things. And then at the end, what he does is he sends David to the hardest fighting place he can, and he wants him to die. Scripture says that in 1 Samuel. And yet David prevailed. David was a good warrior, and he, he survived. And so here's the question. Where did David learn this technique for covering up your problems? He learned it from someone who was abusive to him. He learned it from someone who he had conflict with. He learned it from someone who was part of his childhood trauma. Um, this, this is an important note to make right here. If, if we're not careful, we become the people that we hate. If we're not careful, we become the thing that we try to, to, to push away. We become the thing that we despise. For those of us who grew up in homes where, where dad was blankety blank and mom was such and such and and you you get so angry when you see that in the mirror we we when we don't heal from trauma when we don't address trauma in our past it tends to come back and echo into our future david he is inducing trauma on someone that he endured himself as a, a young man years and years ago 20 years before this moment and it's come back as an as an echo in front of him so Uriah dies. They mourn it. Uh, Bathsheba mourns it. And it says, it says that uh, David waited until Bathsheba finished mourning and grieving her husband. Like, oh, poor thing, you know. And then once she was done with all that mess, uh, he's like, I'll marry you. And uh, they got married. And so as far as David is concerned, it's over. Like, uh, I did this thing, but nobody really knows. Uh, here, here's, before we go into like how it comes out, um, David involved a lot of people in his cover-up. He's not only digging a hole for himself and he's standing in by himself, but he's bringing Joab into it. There's servants involved. Like, hey, go find out who that woman is. Hey, go send this message that way. He, he's involving everybody because, because David is really being, um, kind of selfish in this moment. He's going to, he's going to focus on himself and, and getting himself out of this trouble. But anyhow, he, it's well and done. If you fast forward to chapter 12, though, there's a prophet. He comes to town. His name is Nathan. Nathan is kind of the big prophet who takes up after Samuel dies. And Nathan, he, he ha he's like, hey, king, uh, there's been this like problem out in the world that I just need your help with. And he gives like real ambiguous kind of terms. He's like, you know, just imagine, you know, just not imagine there's this thing out there. He says in, in verse one, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. I won't, I won't say which one. The one rich and the other poor. I'm not going to say any names. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. 
He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Like Nathan is really appealing to like the old David, like the, the, the kid David, right? David grew up. He was a shepherd. He knew what it was like to take care of sheep. He's like, this one guy, he loved that little ewe lamb. It was the only one he has. Like he was eating a, a sandwich. He's like, here, little man. And he just like gives him a little bite of the sandwich. Uh, he, he's drinking a little bit of milk. He's like, here. And like everything, this man, this is like the, the, the John Bo Peep uh, of, of lambs. And he's like, he loves this lamb. But this rich man, he's got all kind of lambs. He doesn't care about them. Verse 4, Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Guy comes to town. Rich man's like, ah, I'm not going to use one of mine. I'm going to take this guy's favorite lamb, and I'm going to make a meal. We're going to have some barbecue, some lamb chops. We're going to. He's like the Bubba Gump of lambs. He's like lamb chowder, lamb gumbo. And, and just like, we're going to eat this guy. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Uh, David, David's pretty severe in his response, right? Uh, here's another thing is uh, when we tend to have flaws in ourselves that we're not addressing, uh, un- unrepentant sin, Things about ourselves that we're really like, we're trying to push down, just, but we're not, we're not wanting to deal with. We tend to see those things in other people really easy. We tend to address them pretty severely. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says, why do you, why do you talk about the speck in that guy's eye when you have a whole plank hanging out of your eye? First deal with the plank in your eye, then you'll see clearly to deal with the speck. David can see like what that guy did was evil. He was wicked. He shouldn't have done that thing. Nathan's like, yeah, you're right. Verse seven, Nathan said to him, you are the man. That takes some guts. This is, this is a guy who like beheads people when they, when he executes them. And he looks at David. He's like, yep, you're right. And you're the guy. You are the one in the story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. This is, this is Nathan speaking as if for God. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add as much more. He's like, I gave you everything you ever wanted. You're, you're, you're walking around bored and you have this abundance. If you needed anything more, I would have given you more. And yet you took what wasn't yours. And he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword uh, and, and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God says, not only have you sinned against Uriah, uh, you're going you're gonna to need to address that. You've also despised me. You've, you've, you've dealt poorly with me. David... Um, David has a stuff called out on him. Now, now this is an interesting place to be in because David has spent, I mean, I, I didn't count the steps, but how many steps did he spend trying to cover up his mistake, trying to hide from his mistake, trying to, trying to remove the consequences of his mistakes? I mean, his mistake after mistake after mistake. It would be easy for David at this point to just continue going down that road. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where there's just a, there's a thing, a story, a, a, a piece of your life that it just, it still gets right here. You know that spot in your throat where it's like there's really nothing there, but it, make, it makes it hard to swallow? A little gulpy kind of moment. It's a regret. Maybe, maybe it's an argument with a loved one. 
Maybe it's a, a season. Have you ever, and you've, you've tried to push it down. You've done all the things that you can do to push it down. Like, what, what do we do with that? See, we, we don't like talking, and just in church in America, we don't like talking about sin so much, but, but the Bible has a lot to say about it, and, and it, it helps because the Bible says that sin leads to death, and then when we feel that gulp in our throat, we're like, yeah, I think I might choke on this thing. Um, but then it also says that there's forgiveness and redemption. So the fact that, that the Bible's very honest with us about what sin is and the effects of sin should help us in addressing it. Uh, in James uh, chapter 1, uh, the, the brother of Jesus, he, he talks about sin this way. He says, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Think, think of like a, like a, a fisherman. You're, you're just, yeah, here, I got something pretty for you. You're lured and enticed by what? Not by the devil. You're lured and enticed by your own desire. Here, I got something for you. This is good. This is really good. You're lured and enticed by your own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. I got something for you, and you're like, oh, that's pretty, and then you attack it. You go for it, right? And the Bible calls that attacking, that going for it is where the sin is. It's not the lure and the enticing it. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a, a guy who was writing about um, uh, David and like the steps that he took. This is uh, the four steps away from death. This guy's name is, uh, where's that? Tim Chester. I read it in, in, he was explaining Bathsheba. He says, everybody is only four steps away from death. And I really like this, this kind of metaphor, this way of thinking through our actions and our behaviors. The first thing that David did is that he neglected his duties and responsibilities. He should have been somewhere else. He shouldn't have even been on the roof. He just neglected what he was supposed to be doing. And then boredom and anxiety increased. The second step is that he indulging our eyes. He saw the woman and he could have walked away. He's like, oh my gosh, like get 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 some get some clothes on and then just like walks away. But but he indulges he, he indulged his eyes. I wonder I wonder how many times we are where we shouldn't be uh, because we're just bored and uh, we're, we're not at home when we should be home and then and then so, something like just looks so so pretty. Like that that would be so much fun to just go and spend time with my friends uh, for one hour, two hours, three hours. It would be so much better. It would be so much funner to look at all the freedom she has over there. I just I just want to I just want to be that. You engage in conversations with people at work. Uh, it would be better for me to tell that boss what I was thinking. It just it looks good, and you think about it, you meditate on it, and then eventually it just comes out of your mouth. Step three is betraying our covenants and our convictions. This is, this is the action of sin. This is the activity where, where this moment becomes, uh, you otherwise wouldn't have done it. You knew, you knew you didn't want to. You're betraying a, a covenant. David is betraying the covenant Uriah and Bathsheba made. He's betraying the covenant with his other wives. Um, and he, and he steps into sin. And then the last and final step, instead of addressing it, there's always an opportunity to address it. Instead of addressing it, he hides it. So step four, hiding sin is what leads to death. Is that we're just, we get so doubled down on our activity, on our behaviors, on just, just trying to, trying to hide from the consequences of it. And we dig and we dig and we dig. The truth is, is that David failed in a huge way. Um, he, he has, uh, violated himself. Uh, he's violated his God. He's violated his neighbor. He's violated his army. In one magnificent, drawn-out failure, he has violated everybody around him. And in fact, when I count this up, he's broke at least four of the Ten Commandments, not, not counting all of the laws that would also be addressed to it. Four of the Ten Commandments. He's almost 50%. You're like, that's really a bad grade. Um, but uh, what we know about David 
is that he's celebrated in the rest of the Bible. How does a man with such an egregious failure uh, get celebrated? It's, it's because he's not defined so much by his failure. Uh, he, he's defined by his God because David chooses uh, repentance. What if, what if you had the ability to um, whitewash the record? Uh, what, if, what if you had the ability to remove from people's memories all of the mistakes that you made? Would you do it? Would you, would you take the opportunity? I, I gotta be honest with you. I, I would probably be tempted to do that myself. Uh, I, I said something I shouldn't have said. I'm just gonna pretend that didn't happen. I'm gonna make sure you don't know about it. David has the opportunity to hide from this, and yet, yet he doesn't. He, he could have it espunged from the record, and we would never have the biblical record of David and Bathsheba. David does the opposite with it. David writes a song about it. He writes a song about how sorry he was that it happened. And in fact, we have it recorded in Psalms, like a song that he wrote after this event with Bathsheba. It's in Psalm 51. I'm going to turn there. I want to read it. Psalm 51, uh, this won't show up up there, but uh, at the top of the psalm, whenever David is writing it, you'll see this in your Bible, he wrote like, hey, here's the purpose of it. Here's what David wrote in the top of the song. It says, hey, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Hey, I got a song, choir master. Uh, okay, what's it about? It's about that problem I had with Bathsheba. You remember that? Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Is this is this a song you want us singing? I want the people to know. Why? Why do you want the people to know? Why do, they, why do you want the people to know your mistakes. Because it turns out that when we repent, when we, when we turn back from our wicked ways, we get to celebrate a God of forgiveness, a God who is not just righteous and he judges truly and honestly. He's a God who can redeem really, really jacked up broken stories. If you're in here, if you've got that lump in your throat and it's something like, it's a regret, I wish it wasn't there, you can, you can continue to hide from it. But I'm going to tell you, there's, there's freedom in Christ. There's an ability to, you don't get to hide it, but you can, you can be redeemed from it and it becomes part of your story so that when you talk about it, it becomes a redeeming factor of God. So David writes the song about how he, God dealt with him after Bathsheba. I'm going to read a few verses out of it. I'm going to start in verse nine. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Look at that last line. He's so honest about his mistakes. He says, if, if you'll do this, God, if you'll restore to me the joy of my salvation, if, if you would, I get to, I get to tell other transgressors, other people who make the same mistake about your ways and they, they will return to you. Your, your sins, your mistakes, your, your, your regrets, all the things that you've repented for, they, they have the ability to either hold you down if from lack of repentance, or you can use that in a story. You, you talk to a friend who's like, you know, I wonder if David had a friend later. Uh, maybe it's a son who's getting ready to go to war, and he's like, oh, Dad, I'm kind of bored. I don't, I'm tired of going to war. I don't, I don't want to go. You think David was like, hey, let me warn you about something, son. One time I was supposed to be in war, I didn't go. I wonder, I wonder if you have any regrets, any mistakes. that You, you can talk to a younger version of you in the workplace, and they're about to, they're about to tell their boss off the same way you told your boss off 15 years ago. And you're like, Hey, man, I know that that sounds like it's going to be fun. I <laughs> believe me, but it didn't work out well. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you have a, a younger version of you who, uh, 
you see, you see that desire, that, that rebellious spirit kind of creeping up, and you're just like, hey, man, I know what it's like to like try to try to run away from your parents. I know, I know what that's like, but I did that, and, and I'm more like the prodigal son. Like I, I ended up in just a mess, and I had to, I had to work my way back. I don't, I don't want you to have those regrets in your life. Would you listen to me? David says that he's going to tell uh, other transgressors God's ways. And, then, and he finishes a verse, uh, well, he continues, but in verse 16 he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. It's like, if you just wanted me to like kill a lamb, I would do that, but that's not what you want. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David's takeaway from this story, this moment, this, this terrible moment, is that what God wants is for people to be honest with him, to have a broken and contrite heart. We should see things in ourselves um, that we're, we're so ready to get rid of. We just give them to God. We don't hide them from God. We don't, we don't try to pretend that they didn't have. We give them to God. And, and in return, God says that he's going to take that. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what David did as a pattern, uh, terrible, wicked stuff. He made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Uh, he sinned against his God and against other people. We've all sinned against our God and against other people. Uh, David hid it. We've hidden it. David repented of it, and he found freedom. So much freedom that he could talk about it publicly and write a song for the choir master. To de- I want you to teach all Israel about my mistake. Teach them all. Because what I found out is that God wants from me not my sacrifices. He doesn't want my religious stuff. He wants, he wants me to come to him brokenhearted, and he's willing to heal. This may be one of the greatest mistakes of David. We have one more that we're going to look at next week. But I just want, I just want to meditate on this with, with you guys uh, this week that um, how close are we? How close are we to just terrible uh, fallout? How close are we to death? If uh, Tim Chester is right, we're four steps away. The four steps are uh, uh, we're we're not where we should be. We've delegated something away. We're just sort of idling a little bit. Then we indulge our eyes a little bit. We look a little bit longer than we should. We think and meditate about things longer than we should instead of just giving up on it. And then we act in a way that is against our convictions or our covenants or promises. That we, We've acted in a way that's uncharacteristic. David acted in a way that was uncharacteristic. And in that action comes with regret and remorse. I just wish that didn't happen. And, and David, he, he tried to hide it for a while, and then it resulted in death. But then he repents of it, and he finds a life, and he finds it a hope. And, and I, I would just warn you that, one, don't, don't think too highly of ourselves that, oh, man, I would never do that. We're, we're all pretty close to making big mistakes. Uh, and two, if, if you're carrying around a gulp, I, I would recommend to you um, to find some forgiveness. I'd recommend to you to find some transparency. Um, scripture says also in James that if we confess our sins one to another, we will be healed. You, you may need to find a, a mature brother or sister, a friend, uh, a pastor, an elder, somebody. Uh, just say, I've been carrying around blank for a while, and I need some, I need some relief. Uh, and I think you can find that in the Lord. Let me pray. Uh, and we will uh, watch the queue together. Father, uh, this morning uh, we, uh, we come to you uh, hearing the warnings uh, that are embedded in the, in the story of David. Um, thank you that they're there. Thank you that he was transparent. Father, um, help us uh, in our weakness. Uh, help us as we, as we navigate this world um, to, um, to, to avoid sin, uh, to flee from distraction, to flee from it. Um, but Lord, for, for those of us who are carrying around regrets and hurts and pains, um, give it, give us the strength to now be transparent with you, uh, to lay them at your feet, 
to, to come to you not with another sacrifice, not with another hope, not with another good idea, but with just a broken and contrite heart to turn to you, our only hope, um, and confess again the name of Jesus over that sin and to find real forgiveness and to find uh, real cleansing and real hope. Um, I pray for us that as we as we walk out of this room, we would walk out with our heads up, uh, not because of uh, uh, prideful arrogance, um, but because of, of hopeful forgiveness. Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.